for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. We're in a series entitled Shaped, Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And we're studying through the book of Deuteronomy. We're in our third week this week. And you may have seen some bookmarks that look like this. I want to encourage you to take one, take two, and use them as invitations to invite people with you on Sundays. But we're looking at, first of all, the four foundational pillars throughout the month of September. And we've covered the first two. Two weeks ago, we began by looking at chapters 1 through 3 in Deuteronomy. And we talked about, remember, the first foundation that we must establish our life up on in order to be shaped for glory through mission is to remember that God is faithful to remember that God is faithfully second of all the second foundational pillar was last week is we've got to cultivate a heart for obedience and we talked about this rebel heart that sin gives to us that opposes God but how the gospel transforms our heart and gives us a motivation a compelling desire because of God's love to obey and to live in that obedience. And today, we're going to look at the third foundational pillar to have our life shaped for glory through mission, and that's this, that we pursue holiness in this life, that we pursue holiness in this life. I was reading a news article that caught my attention Thursday. It was kind of playing off of the entire Adrian Peterson scenario with his child and 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 what's taking place in the news there. And it picked up on the idea of spanking. And and here's what I found so intriguing from a major media source and the tint, if you will, or the bent of this article. It condemned spanking your children because it equated it with being an act of pedophilia. And here's why. Here's the author's whole argument foundation. Because spanking is an explicitly sexual act. That's nuts. But friends, what I'm going to say to you today is this. That if we look to the world to understand life, That's the kind of garbage it gives to us. Its best wisdom and counsel is woefully insufficient. But you also have to weed through that kind of, insert very strong language that I will not repeat right now. That's what you have to to wade through. What I'm doing today is I'm messing with your mind. I want us to look at a new understanding of this world, of your life, because of Jesus Christ. And that's what I'm laboring for today. Our world is sin-cursed. We don't need help to see that. Nothing more accurately demonstrates this 
than the very nature of our own thinking and actions that we see demonstrated in the secular news media. But friends, we don't have to look outside ourselves to see that, do we? We may not be as bad as some, and we may be better than others, and so forth and so on, but the truth of the matter is there's plenty in our own heart to show us that our thinking and our heart needs a new way of understanding life. And so today we set forth this third foundation as we ask God to shape our lives for glory through mission. And here is that third foundation as we pursue holiness. We will set God's word as our standard for holiness. We will set God's word as our standard for holiness. As we move into chapter 5, we'll finish chapter 4, verse 44 is where I'm going to pick up today and This was brought out to me last week, and I want to mention it to you today just so you can maybe follow the sermon a little easier. But when I cover large passages of narrative and didactic material like this, I like to stay in the passage so that we can get an overview, a trajectory of where we're going. And then towards the end of the sermon, probably the last third or fourth of the sermon, We'll come out, I'll make the application points. And if you take notes on the weekly worship guide, that's when you'll go to the weekly worship guide for notes. So for now, follow me through the word. I'll make some commentary as we move through it. And then I'll come back and conclude with application. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44. Moses begins, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So Moses turns his attention at the end of chapter 4 to recite the law for the Israelites. He's built up to this by reminding them that God is faithful. Chapter 4, he calls them to obedience. And now he's about to remind them or recite the law of God to them. These words were given, it says, as a testimony about God. These words testify about who God is. And it reminds us that his provision and his power are the very context within which we should understand his word that describes him because he gives those first. You see, for application for us, preparing to receive God's word should always be set within a remembrance of his loving provision for us. If you look at the whole flow or trajectory of a service at LifePoint, what you will see is this. We're more intent on reminding you of who God is and what he's done for you before the sermon because it prepares our hearts and our minds to receive what God wants to say to us through his word. And then following the sermon, it's focused on responding to God because he has given us his revelation through his word. And that's what Moses has done. He's prepared the people and now he's moving in to tell the people what God has given as a testimony of himself. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 with me. Or verse 1 actually. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And so Moses moves now into setting up uh, uh, what he's going to say, and he calls on Israel to respond to God. How? Relationally. 
He says this, this is the covenant that God established with you. And any time that Moses begins to remind them of the covenant that God has given to them, he's telling them that God desires to relate to you. God desires a relationship with you. He is not a dead God who demands certain performance rituals from you. But he has set up knowing him and being known by him as a personal relationship. And that's what Moses is reminding them of. And how stark the contrast that is set between God and all the other false gods of the people of the world at this time. He is not a religion like all the others. God is distinct from all other false gods. So the way that people respond to him should be distinct unto him as well. And Moses begins in this way. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Learn them and be careful to do them. Moses wants them to receive what God has for them, the words that he is speaking to them, because he wants to learn to have that knowledge, that understanding, that that knowledge might become action and they might do them. You see, obedience is the aim of the Christian life. So really, Moses is summing up his sermon from chapter 4, and he's moving in to introduce the remainder of what he's going to say. And then he moves to the ten words. And let me just say this so you can follow with me. When I say ten words... That is the title for Ten Commandments. And the reason I'm saying that is twofold. Number one, the Hebrew word for word is word. Word? Right? And the second reason is really probably more of a reason I'm saying it. Because every time I say the word command, I see people do that. They just twitch. We have some kind of inalienable uh, understanding in our life that we do not want to be commanded. I am not a child. I don't want anybody telling me what I have to do. And like we just, like we start flinching and twitching when that happens. So I will say the word commandment. See, you just did it. My point is this. I'm laboring for you to have a new understanding of God's commands for you today. And I will use every means biblically possible in order for us to achieve that goal. These are the words of God. For you and for me today and I don't want anything in this world or in our hearts to detract from receiving what God has for us in these words by our understanding and so what Moses does is he sets the ten words in a right context to give to the children here's how he does that look at verse 6 Moses says this I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He sets them in a context. We've seen this time and time again in the first four chapters and we see it again in chapter 5 as we move to the law. Moses sets the ten words in the right context of relationship with God. He begins with the declaration of God and of his saving work. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, God saves people so that people can know him. 
And he gives the ten words immediately after he saves them, after he brings them out of Egypt. They go to the mount, and if you look in Exodus chapter 20, he gives the law for the first time, or the ten words. And upon doing that, he wants them to understand why he has saved them and who it is that has saved them. That's the whole role of the ten words, or the ten commandments. God saves people that we might live holy lives as He is holy. He wants to be known in the world because the way those people who claim to be His live reflects His nature and His character. And so He gives these ten words. You see, a right understanding of God determines a right response to His holy character. And so when He begins, I am the Lord your God, He immediately moves to verse 7. And we're going to look at each of these ten words very briefly as we move through them. Look at verse 7. First of all, you shall have no other gods before me. God's first word rests on his I am. That is why he laid this, in their, laid this on their heart in chapter 4. Remember, he said, worship me as God. Because why? There is no other. There is no other. And when he begins here, he says, I am the Lord your God. I am the one that there are no others like. I am worthy of distinctive worship. Therefore, I command you to distinctively worship me. So he says what? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, before we perceive this as a heavy-handed command, how should we understand this based on the knowledge of there is no other? It's loving. It's truthful. That God says there is no other, therefore have no others before me. He's just trying to align right living with truthful understanding. And so he's loving us. The exclusivity of God is a distinctness of his nature. Because no other God can or has done what God alone has done. Look at verse 8. At word number 2. You shall not make for yourself a carved Image or bow down to them, he goes on to say, as the second word. God commands that no images be fashioned among the people for worship. Now, let me ask you this if he said, You shall have no other gods before me because there is no other, then why would he say you should have no carved image? I want to draw you back to the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. What is the distinction of God? as opposed to all the other false gods in the world at this time. He speaks. He speaks. What did he look like? We don't know. They didn't know. But here is the great contrast that God is screaming at us, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he's not screaming in the sense of speaking, but it's just louder than life. He's saying this, all of the false gods of the world all have an image so that you can see what they look like, excuse me, but you cannot hear them speak. I am the God who speaks. You need no image for me. I will bring that image to you in time. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the firstborn. The fullness of God's deity dwells in him. The reason God didn't want an image is because he would bring a perfect image. 
later on. And the only reason or the only way we would create an image would be an image of the things that we had seen created. And he didn't want us to worship created things. He wanted us to worship himself as the creator who is forever to be praised. That's what Romans tells us. And so when he says, you shall have no carved images, nor shall you bow down to them, because those carved images are false gods, and they may be present in what you created, but they cannot speak to you. I speak to you, and I am present with you, and in my power I have saved you. Worship me by my word that I give to you. The third word that he gives in verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Honoring God, friends, includes correctly using his name to represent him. You see, how we talk about God represents what we believe about him because of what he has said to us to reveal himself. God is glorified when we speak of Him with words that rightly represent and rightly honor Him. You see, God's name is what? What does the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament tell us about God's name? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. His name is worthy of honor. And His name is hallowed because it represents all that we know of God. How many of you have ever heard someone swear by your name? Lane Harrison. I've never heard anybody do that. I've never done that. Why? It means nothing. It means nothing. How many of you have ever heard someone take the name of Jesus in vain, using it to swear in whatever form or fashion they might do so? Why? Because even though they may not believe in it, it means something. It means It's a testimony about the character and nature of God, though a woefully inadequate one, we might add, and one that does not hallow His name, but defames it and degrades it. And God says this, I want my people to hallow my name, to show that it is worthy in all the earth. Look at the fourth word, verse 12. He goes on to say, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now I want to talk about Sabbath for just a moment. It's an important principle in our day and time. Sabbath is literally faith in God to rest, to worship, and to remind ourselves that everything depends on on him. Now, in the early church, just beyond the New Testament times, the early church moved the gathering of worship to the first day of the week because that was the day that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And they wanted to celebrate their risen Lord on the day of the week that he rose. But the principle of Sabbath is not negated for Christians today. It's still very much a principle that we should operate by because it's a creational order, a creational command for us. Sabbath demonstrates that all of life's structures and all of our rhythms and the schedules that we keep and the patterns that we follow, that, that when, we, when we practice Sabbath, we say all of life is fully submitted to Jesus. Our home, our work, our recreation, all of our relationship. And friends, 
In a day and time that we live in today, busyness and overextended, overextendedness is likely the most explicit form of idolatry in our culture as a denial of creation and a denial of God's redemption for us. See, the problem is not the busyness of your schedule. The problem is the busyness of your schedule represents the disorderedness of your heart. And Sabbath orders life by ordering our schedule. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to go deep into explanation here. But Sabbath isn't about being on the couch eating Doritos during football on Saturday. That's not all that Sabbath is. But Sabbath is an intentional ordering of life in order to honor God in the way that we structure our life. It is intentional rest from life's labor in order to display your relationship with God through a faith-driven dependence by relating to others, relating to family, and enjoying creation. And that's what we see in the Old Testament when we see Sabbath explained. You see, God rested not because it was necessary for him to do so, but because it was an intentional modeling that he gave to us in all of creation. The seventh day, Genesis says what? God rested. So if God rested, what makes us think we don't need to? I'll tell you what makes us think that. A skewed perspective, an understanding that does not consider God's words for us. And what God is saying to the Israelites today and what God says to you and I is we need to order our lives in such a way that even in the very rhythms that we live them, we proclaim a testimony that brings honor and glory by faith and dependence upon God in all things. It's interesting, you can look at, um, you can look at studies that have been done and those who work more and longer hours and forsake rest actually become less productive and are able to produce less by working more and resting less than those who maintain a well schedule of rest for their life. The fifth word that we see is in Deuteronomy verse 16. And here's what we see in this. The Sabbath is the first outward expression of our relationship with God. But when we move to the fifth word, we move to a different focus in these commands. The first four words focus us on our relationship and how we honor God. The next six words will focus us on how we relate to people and how we relate to the things in the world. And word number five in verse 16 tells us this, to honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you. Now when God commands us to honor father and mother, he teaches two truths simultaneously to us. First of all, we are to relate to our parents with an honor that they are due. The longer I've been in the pastoral ministry, the more I've realized how sin has broken us in this world and caused us to defame this commandment because of broken relationships. So many of you grew up in a home where you didn't know your father or the knowledge of your father actually causes you problems with God as father because it was not loving, it was abusive, it was condemning to you. And you've lived a great part of your life trying to get out from under the condemning voice 
of a father who was heavy handed on you. Or a mom who abused you maybe. And so when we look at this, I want to say this. Doesn't, because this question has directly come to me, Pastor, because I didn't have a good father or didn't have a good mother in the home in which I grew up. Shouldn't I be uh, dismissed from this commandment? And I would say to you, no, no. It's not a conditional commandment. It's a commandment that is given to us not to honor people, but to love people and honor God. God. And surely how we honor and obey our parents changes as we grow older. A four-year-old doesn't honor and obey mother and father in the same way that a 40-year-old honors them. But in the way that you honor that relationship, whatever it may be or may not be, in the way that you honor that relationship, you bring honor to God through it. Does that make sense? I know many who have come to a point in their life where they can't even talk to their parents, mom or dad. Why? Because the relationship is so broken that that it, it just simply completely twists their mind to even have a conversation with their parents. The, the confusion of it is overwhelming. And so they have to manage even the amount of time that they spend speaking or interacting at all with their parents. Is that honoring their father and mother? I do believe it is. In the cases that I'm aware of. Because the parents continue to perpetrate such confusion. And honestly, even though they're not in the home anymore. They perpetrate such abuse on them from a distance. My intention today is not to explain this commandment. But simply to proclaim it so that we can lay it as a foundation. But this, this is such a heavy need in the world today. I can't move beyond it without helping you understand. I'm not just telling you to do what appeases mom and dad. I'm telling you that in the way you relate to these two people known as father and mother, honor God. And obviously the gospel should be at the center of that. There's a second thing we learn through this commandment though, and that's this. That we should honor the home that is held by this relationship. This might be an explicit home, but on a grander scale, it is just the home. You see, the marriage relationship in Genesis 2, 18 to 25, the command is this. For a man shall leave his father and mother. In other words, it is the severing of primary allegiance in relational ties. Doesn't mean you sever ties. I didn't say that. But it is the shifting, the severing of the primary allegiance is what the word leave means. And you cleave to one another. You reestablish primary allegiance of relationship and love to one another. Husband and wife. So in other words, the husband and or the wife are no longer principally responsible to mom and dad. They are now first and foremost primarily responsible to one another in scriptural means. And what this commandment reminds us of is in the formation of this union of one, a new home is established. And it is that home that this commandment is honoring in the way you relate to them. And Paul reinforces this throughout the New Testament. But what this commandment is telling us from 
a long time ago is that God established a specific relationship as the foundation of a society that reflects and honors Him. And listen, friends, Christians, no matter how broken your past, no matter how broken your home life may have been, God wants the gospel to become so powerful in you that he redeems it for his honor and glory. And God pray that he can reconcile every relationship in the midst of that. But if every human relationship is not reconciled, he will redeem you that he can still be honored by you and through you in those relationships. Okay, I didn't mean to spend that much time on it, and I got a lot more to do. Word number six, verse 17, you shall not murder. This is pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. You shall not murder. What is he saying here? This command demonstrates the high value that God places on all human life. The Hebrew word for murder here is not the generic word for death or for killing, but it is the Hebrew word for the unlawful or the unauthorized killing. And what this commandment does is it establishes the value of human life as created in God's image, what Genesis tells us. And what it also does is to say that human life comes before stuff in this world, as we'll get to in just a moment. Let's move on to word number 7, verse 18. Not only shall you, not, uh, you shall not murder, but and you shall not commit adultery. Here again, we move back to the primacy of this relationship. So humanity as created in the image of God holds a value second only to God himself. But the relationship that most reflects God in all of life, the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman, as Genesis clearly sets forth in chapter 2, He says this, you do not adulterize that relationship. Adultery attacks and defiles the holiest relationship on earth. And it is the one relationship that reflects God himself. We honor marriage as God ordained it, that it might bring honor and glory to him. Not just because two people are really making it work and doing well at it, but because it is God who has ordained it. Word number 8, verse 19 says this, You shall not steal. Now we've gone from the way we relate to God to the way we relate to other people. And in an ordering of priority, now we're talking about the way we relate to the things of this world. Things are not as important as people. And we know that. So often we know that, but so quickly we forget that. And so not stealing is not just a a, a command not to take something that's not yours, but it means we shouldn't value things more highly than we value people. You see, stealing simultaneously devalues other people because you raise the value of stuff above people and you get out of order the godly order that he gave in his ten commandments but you also do another thing it's an act of disbelief in God because you say that God can't provide for you as he's already promised and demonstrated he can so stealing simultaneously says stuff is more important than people and God's not powerful enough to give it to me so I'll go take it for myself the ninth word verse 20 
And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Not only in the way we relate to them, but in the way we speak of them. How we speak of other people, especially in an official manner, like a court setting, not only honors or dishonors them, but it also declares what we believe about God. Hear me, friends. This is why gossip, this is why slander, this is why backbiting is so detrimental to us. And that the really bad part is it's so common to us. It fills our everyday speech. But God says this, the way you speak of other people demonstrates what you believe about me. That's an all-sufficient bridle for the tongue. Just that one little statement you make about somebody else because they ruined your day. You're not saying something about them. You're making a statement about what you believe about God. The tenth word. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not... Let me go back to the, the word here. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. You see, coveting sets our heart and mind on things that take the place of God. It places a higher priority on stuff than on people and upon God. James tells us in chapter 4 that covetousness demonstrates that there are competing desires and passions warring within us. And so see, friends, there is a right way to love God. And how we love other people demonstrates how it is that we are loving God. And Moses recites the ten words in Deuteronomy, not so he can spend a lot of time explaining them and expounding them. And that's what I've tried to do today is just introduce him to remind us of what he's already taught in great explanation. Because his purpose for putting the Ten Commandments in this place in Deuteronomy is because he is training them to live on mission in following God into the land. Let me tell you what mission is. Because we talk a lot about living missionally here, living on mission. What does it mean for us to live on mission? Here is a biblical definition right out of the Ten Commandments of what it means to live on mission. It is God's commands lived out by God's authority through God's power among God's people in the world. It is God's commands lived out by God's authority. Where are we given authority? Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, and whatever he says next doesn't matter. He's just given you all the authority of heaven and earth. Of course, he says, Go and make disciples nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do you think Jesus had read this? Oh my goodness. That's sounding a lot like what we're talking about, isn't it? God's commands lived out by God's authority through God's power among God's people in the world. That's mission. That's mission. Ten words provides a comprehensive vision of God as holy God is holy and God is how? Loving. God is holy and God is loving. Jesus summed up all the law with these words, Matthew 22, when they were trying to catch him. He said this, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, what Jesus is saying is this, is that love is the lens through which we should understand all the writings of God in His law. You could also say this, that love is the voice through which you should hear the words of God. Since we're talking about a God who speaks, right? God's ten words reveal His holy nature and His righteousness. He explains these ten words that we might hear, that we might learn, and we might do for His glory and for our good. There is a right way to respond to the great I am. There there is a right way. And if you don't believe me, go back to Exodus between chapters 5 and chapter 19 and read about the wrong way to respond to the great I am. Because when God sent Moses to Pharaoh and Moses said, Who do I tell him sent me? God said, Tell him I am that I am. That's all? That's all you want me to say? Yes. And ten times, Pharaoh said, no. And then on that tenth time, he kind of got tweaky because it got real ugly in the midst of that. And he said, yes. And they left. And then he said, no, again. So he went after them. My point is this, friends. That, that God explains His Word that, that, that we might hear, learn, and do. There is a right response to God that represents the one who is speaking. And that right response defines for us a standard of who He is. He is a holy and a loving God. And how we are to live, we are to walk in holiness because of the love of God. And that's what I want to labor for today. You see, just as we've seen, Moses knew that the people would not obey. Why? They just got through with 38 plus years of wandering in the desert because they didn't obey. It's not like their disobedience caught him by surprise, you know. A third of his life had been lived as a result of it. You see, obedience is never an issue of outward performance. We crushed that understanding last week, and we'll crush it every week. It's not an understanding of outward performance, but of inward transformation. We need a new heart to obey. We need a new heart that is holy for us because we are not holy in and of ourselves. And so the questions that have come to me is this, what does it mean then to set God's 10 words as my standard for holiness? I'm glad you asked that. That's a great question and I'm about to answer it. Others have asked, even though the 10 commandments are good moral rules, pastor, isn't the law of the Old Testament obsolete for those of us who are New Testament Christians? Can't we just stop talking about holiness and just consider the best that we can do good enough to offer to God and be sufficient? Why can we not do that? Why does God not just accept whatever we can offer and let it be good enough? Because the way we live demonstrates what we believe about the one in whom we believe. And if we just offer our best and we give it to him and it's not righteous, the world will look at us and say, God's not righteous and God is not holy and God is not loving. Our lives are not about us. 
God didn't create us to be about us. He created us to be about Him, His purposes, His glory. And that, friends, is our greatest good. And laboring to set holiness as our pursuit, our singular pursuit in life, is a matter of pursuing the greatest satisfaction, the greatest fulfillment, the greatest pleasure that life could ever bring because it's not delivered by this world. It's divinely revealed from God himself who speaks to us. We need a new understanding of holiness. And these ten words are our standard for holiness. Christians are called to pursue holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says that God calls us in holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says that we are to strive towards holiness. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says this, Be holy as I am holy. And he tells us that we're to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Christians pursue holiness from an overflow of God's covenant promise that is alive within us because Jesus is God's covenant keeper who lives within us. His words in Matthew provide our new understanding. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word for fulfill means to bring to perfection, bring to completion. He says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he telling us? Religious righteousness will never get you to heaven. Self-righteousness will never be sufficient to get you to heaven. We need a righteousness that exceeds a religious righteousness, a self-righteousness. And what the scriptures tell us through the gospel is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law for us. He gives us a new heart with a new understanding. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. A new heart because of God's covenant in Jesus means a new understanding of God's law through Jesus. Holiness comes by the only one who is holy, and that's Jesus. And the law of God is satisfied for us in his perfect performance of life that he lived. And the righteousness of God is given to us in Jesus. Holiness in this life that satisfied God is only found in Jesus Christ. That's the holiness that all of the scriptures point us to. Even these I would propose to you. So here's where I want to bring the remainder of the sermon today. Here's the big idea that I want you to walk away with. And it simply says this. There are ten words. These ten words reveal God's holiness to point us in faith and trust Jesus' righteousness for our obedience. Ten words, the Ten Commandments, reveal God's holiness to point us in faith and to trust Jesus' righteousness for our obedience. When we set God's ten words as our standard for holiness, 
through Jesus, we have three new understandings of them. And I told you I'm going to blow through these pretty quickly. First of all, God's word is our standard means that the aim of holiness is the demonstration of God's character through action. We've already seen this, but Moses says to them what? Hear, O Israel, learn and be careful to do. That's how he introduces the ten words. Pay attention with the intent of gaining a knowledge so that you can live them out in action. And listen, friends, listening to the one true God who speaks, that we might learn and understand his commands, that we might know how to apply them or how to do them, because doing is the goal of our faith. That's what he says, be careful to do. In the same way in chapter 3 and 4 that he told us to guard our lives, guard yourselves, because there's going to be idolatry everywhere. He's saying this, Hear these words that you might learn them and understand them. There's the intellect. But then guard your heart against the deception. That's all you need to do until you take the intellect and you apply it to the heart so you will be compelled and motivated through the will to live these things out. That's the goal of faith is the doing. And he's saying guard your life until you have done God's will by faith. This obedience flows from salvation, not to gain salvation. God's already saved you. But so often we jack with this. We, we get it all awry and think about it and understand it in ways that God didn't intend for us to understand it. You see, one of the main problems among Christianity today is that we guard the heart so that we just feel from God. That, that, that really, uh, spirituality has been reduced to nothing more than just a good emotion. And I would present to you today that that actually destroys your heart. It does not grow it. Let me tell you why. Because the heart will not be satisfied until what it desires is fully completed in action. The heart will not be satisfied until what it desires is fully completed in action. You see, faith in following God is false when it only produces a feeling. And you know me, I'm a very emotional person. I mean, I stand up here and yell every week. You can't tell I'm intense and emotional, right? But what I'm saying is this. The heart's desire needs what the mind learns to direct what the will pursues so that the life's doing completes the heart's longing. And that's what the gospel does for us. It engages the whole of our being. God's word is the living power to perfectly make the whole person into his image. And this hear, learn, and do rhythm or pattern is the heart's faith-driven formula for holiness. Holiness in life demonstrates salvation by faith in Jesus that produces a joyful heart, that produces a surrendered will, and that produces humble actions to follow Jesus who is the living word within. So holiness in life flows from a heart full of Jesus to demonstrate God's character through our actions. We demonstrate God's character through our actions. That's our new understanding of why the ten words of God are so important for us. A second new understanding is this, that God's word as our standard means that God commands a right response to his character. 
We've also already looked at this. My grandfather, I've talked about him before. He died about two years ago. He was larger than life to me. And if you worked with him, he would work you into the ground. And if you went to one of his regular fish fries, he would party you into the ground. He was all of life in work and play. And when a joke was told, he was telling it. And when somebody laughed at it, he was the laughing the loudest. I mean, he just lived life way beyond what most people experience life. Godly man to the hilt. But let me tell you, there isn't a lion in the bush of Africa whose roar would freeze you and send chills down your back more quickly than my grandfather's voice to his grandchildren when we disobeyed. <laughs> hey! Am I about to be eaten? That's the kind of honor we had for them. And if one of us flippantly responded to him, and I'm not talking about being strict or even an authoritarian dictator or anything like that, but if we said something to him that we knew we shouldn't have said or a way we shouldn't have said it, he'd look at it and go, Hey, what'd you say to me, boy? And he'd smile. That reminded me he loved us. So if he killed us, it was only because he loved us. And I'm going to tell you what, he taught me this. There's a right way to respond to people you should be honoring. And he was a man in my life who was worthy of honoring. And I was glad to do it. You see, what God's commands do for us is they teach us that he is wholly worthy of honor. That there is a right way to respond to him. And demonstrating the nature of the one who is I am requires a response that is appropriate to his character. Friends, if God allowed us to act toward him, if God allowed us to worship in any way we chose, it wouldn't just be detrimental to us. It would degrade and defame the glory and the honor of his name. And as I've already mentioned, it would say to the nations, he alone is not worthy. It would say to the nations, there are others. It would say to the nations, he may say, I am, but in truth, he's really not. It would say what God has not said. There is a right way to respond to God because he is holy and loving. And his commands demonstrate a right response. Worship and obedience in response to God's commands reveal a God that is holy and a God that is worthy to be worshipped. The third change in understanding is this. That God's word as our standard means that God secures and empowers our holiness by His living word. God is able to do what He has said He will do. Romans chapter 4, verse 18 and 21, Paul says this. That's how Abraham had righteousness credited to him. Because he believed. Against all hope, he hoped. And he believed that God had power to do what he said he would do. That's the same confessional foundation upon which our faith is built today. Our confession remains that God's word accomplishes God's purpose. Isaiah 55 tells us that his word does not go out and return void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it out. And friends, 
Jesus is God's living word. He perfectly accomplishes God's purpose in the world. He lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death. And the blood of Jesus in his death is the blood of the new covenant that gives us a new heart and a power through his spirit to obey. And it gives us a new understanding by the transformation of our mind. And when the word of Christ is preached, faith comes and faith empowers us to obey. What does it empower us to obey? What God has commanded Get this, if God didn't command it, you couldn't do it. But because he did, and because he secured it and empowers it through Jesus, by faith, you can. Whole new understanding. And I'm praying that we will pursue holiness as we set God's word before us as our standard for holiness. I'm going to invite the worship team to return. And as they're returning, let me give you just a couple of questions to direct your heart and your mind in responding. A new heart in Jesus gives a new understanding that God's word is our standard for holiness. This is why Moses presents the ten words, the ten commandments to the people. He says, you're going into this land to live on mission. This is what mission looks like. It looks like God. And friends, for us today, as I began, the way you think about God's commands determines how you feel about whether or not you should have anything to do with them. Whether or not they're valuable to you whether or not they have any meaning or purpose or good for you. And what I'm saying to you is God has said they do and they are. Let me pose this question. What if, instead of considering all of God's words as what He expects from you, you began to read all of God's word as what He's already done for you? How would that change your understanding? What I'm saying to you today is that's what God's word has said to you. God made him who knew no sin, who was perfect in his life, to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. Are you ready to trade in your rags of unrighteousness? riches of Christ today as we respond to the Lord you're invited the the altar is always open for prayer I'll be here at the front would would love to pray with you and encourage you and counsel you in any way I can you're here today and you don't know Christ you don't call yourself a Christian I want you to know today God wants to make an exchange with you your unrighteousness for his righteousness he'll do it by faith and he'll fill your life to transform you his image. Let me pray and then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to see you as your word perfectly reveals you and not as the world has perverted you. Help us to know you according to your truth and not according to the untrue testimonies of the evil one. Help us to worship and relate to you as you have revealed yourself to be and through Jesus empowered us to do instead of just tritely dismissing you 
for whatever we want to feel or think or offer. In this time, be glorified in our lives and in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond to the Lord in worship.